We continue in our series, and we are in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. And it's also printed on page uh, 7 in your bulletin. We're going to read the first 13 verses. <clears throat> so let us give our attention to God's um, inerrant word. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now there, ro there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold, into the sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you said. I called the priest. And I made them swear to do as they had promised. And I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we um, know that you have purpose for us in it today. And so, Lord, I um, desire to be used by you for their good. Please, Lord, um, by your Holy Spirit, carry me along that I would say um, clearly and crisply what is in this passage. Make it clear to them. And then, Spirit, I pray that you'd move in them, that it would be, they'd be good soil, uh, that the word planted in them would bear good fruit. Uh, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. As we begin, I just want to acknowledge we all have a strange relationship with authority. If we're in authority, we crave more power. If we're under authority, we want to get rid of the, their authority, right? I think that's true of all of us. Think about it. If you're the assistant principal, what do you want to be? The principal. If you're a manager, you want to be a middle manager or district manager, right? You, 
That's, that's our desire. We naturally want more authority. But then when we get it, we don't always know what to do with it. Now, if you're under someone's authority, we naturally want to be autonomous. We talked about that in the beginning, right, kids? Wouldn't it be great if you had no rules, no one to tell me what to do? That seems like a dream, right? We just don't like authority. And at every level, it's easy for us to chafe under it. Now, there's been much research has been done I, as I thought about how to, to bring this home to you uh, about one um, failure of leadership. And the one I want to bring to your attention is particularly um, absent fathers. What impact does that have on children and when a father is absent? Uh, just a few data points for you. One study was done and found that boys who were raised apart from their father were two to three more times likely to end up in prison by the age of 30. Two to three, 200 to 300 percent as likely to end up in prison if they don't have dad there growing up. Also, on the daughter's side, it's of extraordinary importance to have a very present and involved dad. So another study, research has been done, to say that um, when a, if a girl grows up um, and does not have a dad from age six on, she's five times more likely to end up as a teen pregnancy. Five times more likely if dad is not there from age six on. Dads are really important. The affection of a father, particularly to whether it's sons or daughters, is incredibly important. The chances of a daughter having premarital sex is far, far higher if dad does not show her that affection growing up in our house. So what do we learn from that? Authority is important, right? We want to be a dad, but then sometimes many dads uh, don't shirk that responsibility and don't do a good job of it. And so really across the board, we could look at any kind of authority. That's just one. And we could see the breakdown of it has impacts. Nehemiah has a lot of authority in Jerusalem right now. And so we're looking today, as we look at this passage, think about it through the, that lens. What do we learn about authority? How does he use his authority? You look on page seven, you see the outline. Those in authority are to do what? Three things from this passage. Listen and observe first. Take action and then require obedience. Listen and observe. Take action. Require obedience. Okay, we'll look at the first. Listen and observe. Okay, so let's look at the, the problems they bring to Nehemiah. Right? He's rebuilding this wall and all of a sudden all these people are coming to him and, and with an outcry. So let's reread the first couple verses. There arose a great outcry from the people, not only the people, but their wives are coming. So in this, it, it would be un, uncommon for the wives, too, to be going to the governor saying, hey, we're in desperate situation. So it's, it must be a really bad situation. So what is it? Verse 2. <clears throat> so there were some who said, with our sons and our daughters were many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. He's saying, we're going to die of starvation if we don't have food. Please, we're in desperate situation. Then others come. We have mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain because of the famine. Okay, so there's a famine, and they've mortgaged everything. Not only their fields, their vineyards, but then look at the next verse. It, it keeps going on, even to their children, which we'll look at in a second. In verse 4, though, first, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. We're coming into tax season. They couldn't pay their taxes, and so the mortgage, what does it say? Verse 4, they borrowed money with their fields and their vineyards in order to pay their taxes. So if a historian um, of, um, of Persia uh, gave some interesting data on this, uh, 
Well, where did my data go? <laughs> oh, here it is. Um, they, they would let people go back and rebuild the wall. They were fine with that. Rebuild temple, that's great. But they were real big on taxation. It, taxed, it made American taxes look very, very low. Uh, one data said that um, Artaxerxes I collected 20 million gold coins. That was his, that's what he collected in one tax year. Alexander the Great conquered him later. When he goes into Susa, remember that's where Nehemiah is from, guess what he found in Susa? 270 tons of gold bullion. 270 tons. He was just storing it all. Of, of silver, 1,200 tons of silver. He liked taxes. Right? And so the, if you can't pay your taxes, yet they're borrowing money to pay their taxes. This is not a good situation. You saw in verse 3, because of the famine. But then as I said, how, how bad the situation got. Look at verse 5. So they'd, they'd mortgaged everything they could. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as, the, as their children. So they're saying, hey, <clears throat> our children are just like you, the nobles' children, but you who have power and money, the rich Jews, <clears throat> what, what did they have to do? Look at the rest of it. They were, they were forcing their sons and daughters to be slaves. You know it's a desperate situation when parents are selling their children. They have nothing left. And to keep their family alive, they're selling them. And then it says, the daughters have already been enslaved. Commentators say this likely is talking about prostitution. <clears throat> that, I mean, or that the taking of another wife by someone as a slave. I mean, to think about how desperate you are to put food on the table that you're selling children into the sex trade market. Crazy. They're in an absolute desperate situation. <clears throat> and why is this? Because powerful Jews who have the money are taking advantage of the situation. This is crazy. Now remember, Nehemiah did not come here for social reform, did he? And the poor guy came to rebuild a wall. And he's only, the whole wall, we'll find out later, took 52 days. Now I guarantee all this problem did not come in 52 days. So there were all these social problems. Jews taking advantage of poor Jews. And he comes in. He didn't sign up for this. I mean, you could see him saying, like, you deal with your own problems. I'm here to build a wall. But no. You see, one of the things about leaders is they listen. He had compassion. He cared about these people that are rebuilding the wall. It's got to start there. Good leaders listen. Good leaders listen. You'd think that'd be intuitive, but oftentimes leaders have a lot of demands. And sometimes it's hard to listen to those under your authority. But he did. And so this is true. So whether you're a government official... Whether you're law enforcement, whether you're a boss, with employees under your authority, whether you're a teacher with students under your authority, an elder with church members under your authority, a parent with kids under your authority, a husband with a wife, it is incumbent, regardless of what authority you have, that you listen to those under your authority. <clears throat> Wives, would you like your husband to listen to you? And, I mean, this would be, I know we're Presbyterian. Wives, would you like your husbands to listen to you? All right. And everyone. Kids, do you want your parents to listen to you? <laughs> I got to uh-huh. That's right. Everyone who's under authority wants the authority to listen to them, to hear their hearts, to hear what's going on. So that's where it all starts. Okay? But it's not enough just to listen, is it? So our second point. Those in authority are to take action. Look at verse 6 and 7. 
I was very angry, he says. Scripture says, be angry and do not sin in Ephesians. I was very angry. You know, the only appropriate response to this situation is anger. I mean, to watch this, for him to realize, look around and say, this is what's happening. These Jews are doing this to their own people. Anger is the appropriate response. Not sinful anger, but righteous anger. But then look at the next line. I love this. He says, I was very angry and I took counsel with myself. One of the things when you read scripture, you should always say, why is this little detail in here? Now, in a novel, there's all kind of superfluous details, right? Just to make it more colorful. The Bible is not like that. You haven't realized that already. And every detail that's in the Bible is there for a reason. And so you have to ask yourself, why is this here? What does this mean to take counsel with kids? What do you think that means? He took counsel. What this means is he paused and he thought. He didn't just fly off the handle. He was very angry. But he paused before he did anything. He thought through it. What am I going to do with this situation? This is important. Well, let me apply it to you. How do you respond when things are out of control in your house? How do you respond when things are out of control in your classroom or at work with your employees? Do you start yelling orders? Or do you take counsel with yourself? This is a principle to pause and think. <laughs> I've done this. I know many parents have done this. You go to your room. I'll be there in just a minute. Right? Gives the parent a minute to cool off. Right? Figure out, how am I going to handle this little rebellious child? Right? He took counsel with himself. Appropriate to be angry. We should. It should bother us when our kids rebel, when employees don't do what they're supposed to, when the classroom is out of control. Right? But he took counsel to think about how to handle the situation. He didn't just start fussing at him, scolding, making empty threats. He took counsel with himself. You know, one of the reasons this is really important, let me speak to parents, is that um, kids' sins are like weeds. If you've ever pulled weeds in your yard, you know, some of them just snap right off, right? But as you know, if that happens, what's going to happen? It's going to pop right back up. Unless you get the, the roots. You got to get the roots out. Same with sin and kids. Actually, same with us, but we're the ones who are trying to help the kids. And so there's, there's some driving force behind their sin. It is not always obvious, even to us, to figure out what's driving this. What's behind this? That's part of our job, to figure out what is, what's going on? Why, is the, why the problem? Because we could just start barking orders. You're grounded for the rest of your life. But what, why, why is this happening? Take counsel with yourself. So he does that. You know, this year we're focused on stewardship. So we must realize that authority is a stewardship. It's something that God has entrusted to us. We see this in Romans 13.1. It says, For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. So whatever your level of authority, whether it's government official, law enforcement, boss, teacher, pastor, elder, parent, or husband, or there are probably some other authorities, it's given by God. It's been entrusted to you. And so we're a steward of it. We have to take that seriously. Now, if you're under authority, kids, this is where you get to listen in. If you're under authority, what's your job? Your job is to obey the authority, right? To submit to it. So you too must understand, God has put authority in my life for my good. He even uses bad authorities for our good. 
Only God can do that. He has put authorities in our life for our good. So we should not chafe against it. We should not rebel against it. This is, so thinking back to Nehemiah, he's got this complex situation. He didn't create the problems. They've probably been longstanding. What do you do? I mean, what if you were Nehemiah? Like, okay, they're, they're all, they've all mortgaged all their stuff. The kids sold into slavery and the nobles have all the power and the control. How are you going to fix that? What does he do? Look what he does. Look at verses, we'll start in six again. I was very angry. I took counsel. <clears throat> oh, sorry, I got lost. Okay, and when I heard their outcry in these words, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now that's gutsy. He's bringing charges against them. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. I held a great assembly against them. He gathered everyone together to bring charges against those in charge. He is definitely taking his authority very seriously. And he's counting on them taking it seriously too. Look, he keeps going. A great assembly, verse 8. And he said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who are sold to the nations. But you even sell our brothers that they may be sold to us. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying, some of us that had money and means, we actually paid to get some of the Jews out of exile, to bring them back into Israel. We get them back, and then now to make a buck, you're selling them back into slavery. That's a pretty powerful argument. Saying, what you're doing is absolutely ridiculous. We've set everyone free so you can make them your slave, just to make a buck. Look at how do they respond. It says they could say nothing. Right? That he, in, in a sense, the expression, nailed them up against the wall. Right? He pinned them down to say, look what you're doing. This is not right. Now, there is many things acceptable in our culture. That is not one of them. If you say anything is wrong, that is completely unacceptable in any setting, it's very important. Now, I'm not saying God has not called us to fix every social problem in the world. If you read the New Testament, there were many social flaws in the first century in Rome. It was a mess, and they were not there reforming all of it. They were preaching the gospel so that the lives would be transformed. But what's different is when you are in authority. Those under your authority, you have a duty to take action. You have a duty to think through it, but to do something and not just stand by. I hope you see that here. Look at verse 9. He goes on. He said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought not you to walk in the fear of God. He's bringing God into it to prevent the taunts of the nations. Right? That people outside are going to laugh at us. Right? They we're making each other slaves. It's a ridiculous situation. He goes on. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants. Well, this is interesting. Okay, slow down a second. Look at this verse. What does this mean? I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Well, it can mean one of two things. Either he's talking in the collective we, or he's actually admitting guilt. <clears throat> the commentaries that I read lean more toward the accepting guilt. I tend to agree because, look, he doesn't just say we. He says, I and my brothers and my servants. He's pretty specific. 
So maybe somehow Nehemiah unintentionally has ended up in this. He didn't realize what was happening, that as he was lending out money, the impact that was having on the poor, the Jews. Okay, this is again really gutsy. If he is putting his, himself under it, he's acknowledging his own guilt. If that is what it is, that would be very courageous. When you're in authority, it is hard to admit when you're wrong. Men, is it hard to admit when you're wrong? Amen? <laughs> I got some mahas. It is. It is very important when you're in authority to admit when you're wrong. And what a powerful um, lead this is to say, hey, we all need to stop this. If we are doing this, and he says, give it all back. Give it all back. You know, I heard the paradigm once from one of my mentors that leaders do three things. I really like it, and so I want to share it with you. Uh, leaders start things, stop things, and shepherd things. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, two weeks ago, I talked about that leaders speak. You remember that? I said, don't be like Adam. He was silent, right? We need to speak. But it's not just speaking. We also need to take action. And so these are three ways leaders take action. Start things, stop things, shepherd things. So let's just look at some biblical examples. Well, Nehemiah started something, didn't he? He's in Susa, and he comes back, and he's starting rebuilding the wall. Right? He saw a need, and he's leading in it. Pretty clear, right? Noah. Were there any arcs before Noah? Nope, no big boats. And so Nehemiah starts something. I mean, I'm sorry, Noah starts something. Right? You see that. Jesus. Jesus, there was no early church. And so he comes, he appoints 12 disciples, he trains them, and he launches the early church. I'd call that starting something. Garden of Gethsemane, he starts a prayer meeting. He says, you know what we need right now is a prayer meeting. That's what leaders do. We start things. Teachers can do this. You see what your students need and you start something. Parents can do this with their kids. I see a pattern of sin here. Let's start something new. Or maybe we're going to make a chore chart. We're going to divvy up this work and we're going to get this organized. Husbands can do this. Hey, honey, I think it'd be good if, if I, we read a little devotion before we go to bed and pray together. You start something. You start reading the Bible as a family. That's what leaders do. We start things. Well, it's not only what we do. We also stop things. How is Nehemiah stopping something? Is he stopping anything in this passage? You better believe it. Right? He's saying, stop what you're doing. What you're doing is wrong and give it all back. I, I think that would qualify as a stop, wouldn't you? Jesus, did he ever stop anything? How about he cleared the temple with that whip? I would call that stopping something. He's flipping over tables. They were charging exorbitant interest too. Or exchange rates, right? So this is wrong. This is immoral. Stop it. Moses did. He came down the mountain. They were worshiping a golden calf. He ground it up and made them drink it. <laughs> I'd call that stopping. He put an end to that. Right? So leaders stop things. Do you do that? Absolutely. Parents, you're in the business of stopping things. Law enforcement. You know, it's not that little speed limit sign that makes people drive decently. It's when they enforce it. Right? All of, this is something authorities do. They stop when things are happening they aren't supposed to. It's not only those two things. Ooh, let me, let me step on some thin ice here. Do husbands have a role in their wife's sanctification? Ooh, what do you think? Do husbands have a role in their wife's becoming more like Jesus? Well, I won't answer that question. I'll let the Bible answer that question. 
Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ has the lead in sanctifying wives, but husbands do too. Now, there's a whole other sermon would be how to go about that in a good and godly way that's helpful and living with your wife in an understanding way. That's a whole other sermon. But you have a role. Did you know that you have a role? Scripture says you do. So as authorities, we must realize our role. Okay, so he said, start, stop. The third was shepherd. If your kid's scared of the dark, they really need shepherding. They need comforting. Right? If, if your wife is really struggling with anxiety, they don't really need a start or a stop. They probably need a shepherd. They need someone to comfort them and encourage them, help them from Scripture walk through this. But there's many situations that need shepherding. Jesus did this all the time. A lot of his time with the disciples, you look, and they're walking along and they have a conversation. He's usually shepherding them, right? His, much of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, he's shepherding. This is really important, that as leaders— that we start things, we stop things, and we shepherd things. If you're under authority, you need to let other people in your life help start things and stop things and shepherd things. It's a gift from God to us to give us authorities in our lives. Okay, so that's the second, but there's more. There's something else that's key in order for authority to actually get the job done. It's the third point. You can look at it there. Yes, it is. Require obedience. Look how this passage ends. Verse 12 and 13. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah says, great. As long as I have your word, I'm off. No. Look what he does. Talk is cheap. And I called the priests and made them swear. To do as they had promised. It's almost like he calls them up. He has a great assembly. He calls them up and says, you say it to their faces. He's making them swear to do what they say. And he goes on. He's still not done. He starts shaking out his garments. Now, what's this business about? He's shaking the dust off of them. And he says, if you don't do what you say, look what it says. May God shake you out. He's saying, if you don't keep your promise, may God's curse be on you. Man, he means business. Oh, and the people did as they promised. No joke, they did. You see, one of the key things about authority is requiring obedience. Talk is cheap. Have you ever been at a workplace? Day one, they tell you all these rules. Day two, you realize no one actually keeps those rules. You're like, yeah, I'm not doing any of those things. None of them are enforced. What do you do? The things that are enforced. It's true with kids. Kids quickly learn. What are the things I actually have to do here? At every level of authority, it's not what's said, it's what's enforced. You know, Nehemiah could have scolded them all and said, what are you doing? You're so terrible and gone back to the wall. Probably nothing would have changed. He told them what to do, and then he required obedience. This is important in parenting, isn't it? Right? You scold your kids. If you do that one more time, you're getting a spanking. How well does that work? Well, one more time after that time. I'm serious now. If you don't get your act together, empty threats never get the job done, right? Kids, you know that. You might enjoy that. You know the rules. You know when it's serious. You know when, oh, I actually have to, they mean business now. Right? So it's what's enforced. 
Nehemiah actually absolutely does this. You must do this with your authority. Now, the problem is, is many of us are deflated because authority has not been followed. So you have to figure out if you're a boss, if you're a teacher, how do I handle this situation? What has God given me in this situation in order to make sure people obey? I want to think, I want to give you a couple categories from scripture. The government. What does the scripture say about government? It's in Romans 13. I already referenced it. It says this, verse 4. If you do wrong, be afraid. For he, it's talking about the government, does not bear the sword in vain. They had swords. We now have guns. Right? The police have guns not in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God intends that the government have weapons in order to enforce the rules that they make. God intends that obedient, that um, those who are in authority are obeyed, right? Okay, that's the government. What about parents? Does Scripture say anything about parents? This is Proverbs 13, 24. Jot this down if you're a parent. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Those are strong words. Not mine. That's Scripture. But he who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 22.15 Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Anyone who has kids know this is true. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Parents have been given the rod. You figure out what that means, whether it's a wooden spoon or whatever it is. Right? But it, Scripture says the government has the sword, parents have the rod, and then what about church leaders? No, I don't have a sword, and no, I don't have a wooden spoon. Matthew 18. The elders, the leaders of the church, it says this, if he, the one who's sinning, refuses to listen to the people that come to him, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, tell it to him. You know, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector, as someone who's not part of the church, though he was. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. This is talking about excommunication. Saying if someone holds on to sin, even though they're a member of your church, they've said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. If they act like a heathen, and they won't repent, and you keep working with them and working with them, eventually you have to kick them out of the church and say, you are like a Gentile. You're not part of this church anymore. And the hope is, is that it would wake them up and say, they'd run back in the door. And they'd say, I don't want to keep living like that. Do you see how God has given levels of authority a means by which to require obedience? Now, if authorities don't use that, then we're failing. Many churches do not do church discipline. Many parents do not discipline their ch children. And if a government does not discipline those who do wrong, you see what happens. God intends that we require obedience. That this may be the outcome. And all the assembly, this is in verse 13, said amen and praise the Lord. This is interesting, isn't it? Everybody's happy when authority does their job. Those who are weak are being protected. And those who are doing wrong are held accountable. And the people did as they had promised. As we wrap up, I want to take one final look at this passage from a whole different camera angle. Very briefly. This passage not only teaches us about authority, teaches us about authority, but it also gives us a picture of the gospel. What do I mean? Let me explain. Remember, the Jews are helplessly in financial debt. They've tried everything to do to fix their problems. They mortgaged their houses. That didn't work. 
they sold their kids as slaves. They still didn't work, right? They had tried every means possible. Did you know that all of us were either once or still are hopelessly spiritually in debt? A debt you can never pay. Your sins, whether great or small, you have a debt before God and you're helpless. Anything you try to do to get out of it just makes it worse, just like for them. You see, on Nehemiah, how did he fix it? He fixed it with words, didn't he? He just said, stop it, give it all back. Right? He didn't say what he did, and he fixed it. They said, okay, we'll give it all back, we'll stop. You think Jesus can do that for us? Can you just say to God, just forgive them. Don't hold it. Get, get, let, let go of all their sins. Can, can Jesus do that? The answer is no. You can do that with financial debt. You can't do that with spiritual debt. Someone has to pay the debt. Every spiritual debt has to be paid. Nehemiah did it with words. Jesus did it with his own blood. Wow. Nehemiah is cool. This is a great, cool story. It's nothing compared to Christ. We are all hopelessly in debt. And we should. How do you fix the problem? Just like the Jews. Take a page out of their book. Run to the authority and cry out and say, I'm in trouble. I can't fix this problem. Kids, this is true of you too. Your parents will help you see your sin. They'll help you understand that you are not like you're supposed to be. And so what do you do? You can't fix it. You can just try harder. You will fail. All the adults have tried. We fail and fail and fail. So will you. You have to turn to Jesus and say to Jesus, Jesus, I need your help. Jesus, please forgive me. I can't fix this problem. Do you see the parallel there between the gospel and this passage? And so they did, and, and the authority fixed it. Jesus fixed it with his blood. I don't know if at your job you have annual performance evaluation. I had those when I worked. And uh, it talks about if you don't have those. I'm talking about how you did that year. How did you perform? So Nehemiah is a great leader. Arguably, he maybe had some guilt in this matter. Jesus had no guilt. Absolutely perfect. His performance evaluation, God writes your name at the top of it. That's what salvation is. When you're union to Christ, you get his performance evaluation, which is really great. Kids, this would be like the person who got 100 on the test writing your name at the top, right? That'd be great. You get the great now. That's what salvation is, is that now, and see, this should take pressure off of you. If you were paying attention this past half hour, you should feel convicted. You're either not, and me included. I've been convicted too, that I'm not always using my authority as I should. I'm not starting everything I should start. I'm not stopping everything I should stop. I'm not shepherding always when I should, right? Or you're under authority and you chafe against it. Then that should bring you to the point to say, Jesus, I need you to cover these sins. And then you can actually try to be better, not to save yourself. See, because it's paralyzing. If I'm putting the weight on you, that you need to like be a good authority to save yourself. It's a ton of pressure. No, the gospel takes all the pressure, so it gives us freedom to imperfectly try to be a little bit better of an authority, a little bit better following authority. I hope that makes sense to you. The gospel takes all the pressure off. So this passage, you see the gospel, and you also see some good examples of how we as authorities should listen, should take action, and should require obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord, I admit as I hope they do too, that we have not always used our authority as we should. Lord, as I wrote this, Lord, you brought to mind ways that I failed in this. And Lord, I repent for those. I, I wish I was more consistent as a leader. 
Lord, I wish I didn't chafe under authority. Lord, we all can say that if we're honest. Lord, if there be anyone here who's never been saved, never done that, never cried out to you, may today be the day they did it, whether child or adult, who would say, I can't fix my problems. I can't be good enough. I'm hopelessly in debt. My only hope is from outside, someone to fix my problem. Thank you, Jesus, for fixing our problem. Thank you, Jesus, for giving up your life to pay the price for my sins and their sins. Lord, may this give us the freedom, and may you grow us all in the different positions you've put us of authority. Help us use it to your glory. Be good stewards, Lord. We really desire to be good stewards of the authority you've given us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let us stand and worship as we sing this, I believe. As we stand, I don't know if, um, how, uh, I don't know, when I was thinking about this, I realized this is the, it's actually the Apostles' Creed put to music. And so let us worship the Lord for who he is and what he's done for us. So let's stand and sing.
life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the